Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Have you heard? Sling TV offers the news you love for less. Hey, wait. You look and sound just like me. I am you. I'm the same news programs on Sling TV for less. You mean you're me, but for less money. A lot less. I'm all the favorite news programs and more on Sling TV starting at just $40 a month. Everything great about me, but for less money? Which makes me greater, don't you think? Get the news you love and more for less. Start saving today. Visit Sling.com to see your offer. Sling. Welcome to the Smirconish Podcast for independent minds. It wasn't supposed to happen this way. With the Democrats relying on wishful thinking and vague threats to fulfill their biggest campaign promises, didn't Joe Biden win the presidency with a 7 million vote popular majority? Didn't Democrats win both houses of Congress? If there's anything more unnerving and disheartening than the Republican Party's shredding of core Democratic and Republican principles over the past several years, It's how so many of the Democrats' attempts to fight back are grounded in delusion or futility. So writes for Politico Jeff Greenfield, the five-time Emmy-winning network television analyst and author. The full piece is in all of my social media. Hey, Jeff, thank you so much for coming back to the program. Always a pleasure, Michael. You published this a couple of days ago, and yet it's even more timely, I think, given the speech that the president delivered yesterday in in Philadelphia excoriating Republicans for these voting law changes, albeit not mentioning the filibuster. And then last night, Senate Majority Leader Schumer announcing $3.5 trillion agreement among Democrats for the so-called human uh, infrastructure bill. So put it in context in terms of those two events, if you would. What's the thesis of what you argue? My, the thesis is that the Republicans have done genuinely dangerous anti-democratic uh, things throughout the last several years, of which the restriction on voting is, is part of that. But the, but the answers the Democrats have over and over again, and I left out some in that piece, strike me as, as, as I said, either delusional or futile. Delusional in the sense that they somehow think that their tiny majorities or non-existent majorities in the Senate uh, gives them the chance to, to replicate FDR and LBJ, who came into power with huge landslides and with massive Democratic majorities. So you have, for instance, a group of the House progressives saying, we're not going to even vote for the bipartisan infrastructure plan once it's completed, unless we can also get this much more ambitious plan that only Democrats are going to vote for. Or, um, or my, I guess my favorite is we'll expand the Supreme Court because we don't like the decisions that this court has made. Um, it, it, it's reaching for answers that do not fit, in my view, the politics of the moment. You make the observation that Roosevelt and Johnson both had crucial Republican allies. Biden has none. 
I think that's one of the more overlooked facts when people make these comparisons. Uh, in the 1930s, you had any number of Republicans, you know, Bob La Follette, uh, you know, of, of Wisconsin, uh, George Norris in Nebraska, uh, and Johnson had Ev Dirksen, who gave him crucial support on the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act. When Medicare passed, a huge chunk of Republicans in both houses voted for it. So that when you're measuring Biden's political clout, you have to include the fact that the Republicans, and this goes back, by the way, to Obama, and it even goes back to Clinton, are absolutely determined never to let a Democratic president get credit for anything. And for me, given the narrowness of, of the Democratic hold, I mean, Biden was 42,000 votes in three states away from from losing this election. The 7 million vote plurality is is politically, in a sense, irrelevant. Um, you might think that the Democrats would look at what was passed in March and what might be passed with a bipartisan infrastructure bill and say, we are going to demonstrate to skeptical voters that, that we, Democrats, can deliver really useful help. <clears throat> and the idea that the, this may be uh, blown up because some progressives can't get everything they want strikes me as just it's it's political malpractice. Jeff, why is this in a big picture an asymmetrical fight between Republicans and Democrats? Uh, because well, there are a lot of reasons. That's a really good way to frame it. One is it's asymmetrical because there is a a bias, if you will, both in the Electoral College and the Senate uh, that makes it imperative for Democrats not simply to win popular majorities, but to win by big enough margins to offset that. The second thing is you have a Republican Party now that is so determined to uh, tug the forelock and bend the knee uh, at Donald Trump that the normal interchange of politics is, is very much threatened, particularly because you have a Democratic Party with a resurgent progressive wing that believes it represents the majority of Democrats, even though the Biden victory last year pretty conclusively demonstrated that they don't. And you could also turn to the recent mayoral election. Uh, the demands of progressives to, to hold Biden's feet to the fire, that's perfectly appropriate. But the threat, for instance, to vote against an infrastructure bill, unless the filibuster is abolished in the Senate, strikes me as uh, it's right out of blazing saddles when Cleveland Little puts a gun to his own head and threatens the other people with his own with his own death if they don't do what he says. It it, it strikes me that the two parties are operating under very different impulses, and that is not helpful to where the president and the Democratic slender majority is right now. I had my finger on the dump button. I was afraid you were going to cite the campfire scene. Oh, no, 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 no. That's a whole, that's an apolitical scene. <laughs> my, my dear friend Andrew Bergman wrote that movie. It's a famous scene, but I, I, would, I can't think of the correct political analogy. I could work my way up to it, Michael, but you wouldn't want me to do that. <laughs> you, also, uh, you also remind in this piece that we're discussing the, the short history of the filibuster going to 2013 when it was Harry Reid 
who decided to end the filibuster for judicial nominations except for the Supreme Court. I bring that up because many are saying, and and I, you wouldn't know this, Jeff, but in the first hour of the program today, I talked about how Joe Biden came to the precipice, but he wouldn't even use the F word yesterday in that Philadelphia speech. Right. Um, the example that I actually use by analogy to what you're saying is the the argument that we should expand the Supreme Court. Right. Um, because, you know, it's a six to three majority. Here's the answer. We'll put four justices on the Supreme Court, and now we'll have a seven to six liberal majority. And then I guess in a couple of years when the Republicans have the Senate and the uh, House and White House, they'll put five more members on the Supreme Court, and it will it will uh, ultimately expand to the size of the U.S. Senate. Um, be careful what you wish for. Uh, is a very useful notion in politics. I, look, I think that Mc, Mitch McConnell, the minute he got the chance, would have exploded the judicial fis- filibuster anyway, because his lifelong dream, which he is kind of almost done, is to cede the federal bench with a solid conservative majority. But but the answer of expanding the Supreme Court is just apart from that, that's not going to happen. Uh, it, it's so transactional. Uh, it, it's so uh, violative, if you will, of the way that you might want to fix the Supreme Court, which is to elect enough Democrats so that their their appointees will in time override that. You know, I, I guess I think it was interesting that in the two years that uh, the Republicans had the White House, the House and the Senate in from 2017 to 19, the one thing they didn't do was to expand the Supreme Court. You know, they could have put six new justices on the courts. But they didn't because my argument is Republicans are using the rules, like in the state legislatures, and their power uh, to obstruct stuff in Congress. And the Democrats seem obsessed with finding whole new ways, politically untenable ways, to fix their problem. My fundamental argument is the Democrats' dilemma here stems from the failure at the state level in particular – to win enough political battles to do what they want to do. And if they are mistaking Biden's power with Roosevelt or Lyndon Johnson's power, that's the delusional part of the point. If the Democrats' legislative fix will never happen, as you are so clear-eyed in arguing in the Politico piece, then what was yesterday all about? Why did President Biden go to the National Constitution Center and and deem these restrictive voting laws as the most significant test of our democracy since the Civil War while making a pitch for the For the People Act? Yeah, I don't have any argument with the with the notion that the Republicans in states across the country are doing great damage to the process of democracy. Um, And I think what the what. In some sense, if I had to do this in strictly political terms, I think Biden's appeal may be to the suburban, normally Republican voters who walked away from Trump to say to them, your party is now small d anti-democratic. And it is so much the argument of, in this case, the base of the Democratic Party, the caucus in the House and the Senate, that these rules are not only restrictive, but really damaging, both to their political prospects and to democracy in general, that they've got to keep making the case. 
the problem is that, that uh, without getting into the weeds, the For the People Act, as it was originally proposed, is so full of uh, possibly unconstitutional and otherwise irrelevant aspects to the right to vote that it became a kind of kitchen sink into which Democrats dumped everything they wanted, from public financing of campaigns to requiring candidates to release their tax returns. Uh, now, they're working now on a narrower version. But one of the things that I think you keep having in mind is there's not a single Republican who was prepared to support federal legislation uh, to tell state legislatures that there are certain things they can't do. And the sea change in the Republican Party on this issue just in the last 30 years has been absolutely astonishing and enormously disheartening. So the solution, according to Jeff Greenfield for Democrats, is then the Al Davis proposal, the Raiders late owner, just win, baby? Well, yeah, and I know that sounds like, a, a, like something flip, but here's my argument. Let, if, if they can get this infrastructure bill passed, the bipartisan one, and I think, by the way, there's going to be a lot of pressure on Republicans not to sign on to this, then, the, then Biden's fundamental argument is Ronald Reagan is what was wrong when he said the most dangerous nine words are I'm from the government and I'm here to help. There are businesses that are going to be saved. There are homes that are going to be saved. There, the, this new child credit expansion is, is starting to flow. We are showing you what we can do. And by the way, every member of the other party voted against all this. Now, if the Democratic Party can't make a politically potent pitch out of that, maybe they don't deserve to govern. Hey, Jeff, finally, will you put in this context and thank you for this conversation? It's terrific. And I appreciated the piece that you wrote. And I I'm grateful for your willingness to come on and to discuss it. Will you put into this conversation the fact that you've got 50 some Texas House Democrats now on the lam in Washington because it directly relates to one state's response to what you're describing? Yeah, it's hard for me to um, to criticize what the, what the uh, Democrats did. But what it demonstrates is, again, futility, that there is a close to a supermajority in the Texas uh, legislature uh, for Republicans. So whether or not they can block these particular um, pieces of legislation or not, I don't yet know it. I don't think we know. But over and over again, you, know, you might remember there were, the Democrats in Wisconsin tried to do this back in 2011. They fled the state to try to block then-Governor Walker from instituting various anti-labor bills. And it ultimately, yep. yeah, it ultimately failed because what it looks like to some people is, well, you're just, you know, you're running away from the fight. Yeah. Um, but but what it really demonstrates to me is that the, the, the start of all of this goes back to 2010 when legislature after legislature fell to the Republicans. Uh, and for the last decade plus, we have been living with the consequence of the massive Republican power in state after state to change not just voting bills, but labor bills, uh, bills on abortion, bills on education, not expanding Medicaid. That was a bigger disaster for Democrats than the loss of the House in 2010, and we're still grappling with that. Well, it's interesting because I think much of the time the the national uh, interpretation, the national or dominant media spin is to say, look at the Republican parties. They're they're reeling. Donald Trump is is their leader. Uh, They they lost control of the Senate. 
the house is, yeah. uh, pardon me, you know, et cetera. But I always try and say, look at what's going on on the state level and in gubernatorial mansions. The GOP is alive and well. Indeed, I did. I did a political piece of uh, shortly after the election on just this point. That's part of the delusion that the Republicans are on the run, that they're a right. deeply divided party. <clears throat> that is not true. It is Donald Trump's party. And, you know, MSNBC and CNN, your part, sometime employer, delight in putting on the voices of Republican opposition to Trump. But they are a fringe. This party is in the hands of Donald Trump and his supporters. And in state after state, um, people who once resisted Trump, like Secretary of State Raffensperger uh, in Georgia, he's all for these new voting restrictions. Um, you know, never mind what they've their view of January 6th, that that's been dropped into the memory hole. Uh, and I think the Republicans, uh, after this uh, special election in Texas, the majority the Democratic majority in the House is three. OK. Three. Uh, and how, you know, how people misinterpret what's going on as, a, you know, Republican Party on the brink. I do think that is the case that for a lot of dominant media folks, they don't see what they don't want to see. Jeff, thank you so much. Look forward to your next visit, I hope. Always, as I say, Michael, you're you're a delight to join because uh, you you are on that jagged promontory trying to hold out <laughs> room for a reasonable civil discussion. <laughs> you're an endangered you. species, Michael. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Bye-bye. Jeff Greenfield is a five-time Emmy-winning network television analyst and author. The Smirconish Podcast for Independent Minds. Listen to Michael Smirconish live weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon east on Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124 or anytime on the SXM app. Connect with Michael on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and at Smirconish.com. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts. Everything's changing so fast these days, and that's a great thing. I mean, back in my day, we were lucky if we could get one video to load on our desktop computer. But now there's the Xfinity 10G network. That means the fastest Internet with faster speeds rolling out every day and Internet that can power a house full of devices at once with ultra low lag. So while one person streams a movie from their room, another can play video games in the basement while another TikToks in the kitchen. It's the next generation 10G network only from Xfinity. The future starts now. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and not guaranteed.